0: Let's pray together. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we praise you, for you are indeed risen from the grave. We praise you that all of God's holy and righteous justice was poured out on our behalf by you on the cross. And, Lord, we praise you that you are vindicated through the resurrection. For, Lord Jesus, the holiness of God was satisfied by your sacrifice. And so, Lord, we praise you as those who have had the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ applied to us. On our behalf, we praise you, Lord, for this great salvation that we have received. And Lord, even as we remember on Resurrection Sunday, Lord, that you have risen from the grave. Lord, this is something that we celebrate every Lord's Day. For Sunday is the Lord's Day because it is the day that you rose from the grave. And Lord Jesus, we celebrate your resurrection every day. Lord, confident in the fact that you continue to live and make intercession for us before the throne of God above. Lord, we're confident that you are praying for for us, that your Holy Spirit is praying for us even now as we attend to your word, even as we face the the challenges of being separated. Lord, we're confident in the work of your Holy Spirit. We're confident that the prayers that are offered up on behalf by him and by Jesus will be heard. And Lord, that your word will have its effect in our hearts. And so we, we are so encouraged and so confident in all that you have done for us, and all that you will do for us. And Lord, we're confident as well that, Lord, you keep your promises, and Lord Jesus, one day you will return to bring us home to be with you forever. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Our passage this morning is uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. Romans 4, verses 13 to 25. On faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law but also to the one who shares in the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all as it is written I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist and hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, for he, sorry, that he has been the, should become the father of many nations, as he has been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. And he gave, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of our Lord. The news these days is dominated by bad news. That's true most of the time, but it's worse at the moment as news is consumed with news about COVID-19. But COVID-19 is nothing compared to the bad news of the infection of sin. There are concerns that the global economic crisis that will take place because of COVID-19 will be worse than the disease itself in terms of lives lost. But what the infection of a truly global pandemic, a universal pandemic, required a cure that is even worse, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. On Friday, we looked at Romans 5, 1 to 11, focusing on what we have received in our justification and what our justification cost. And as explained then, to be justified doesn't just mean to be pronounced guilty. It means to be declared righteous. To be justified means to be made right with God. Those who are justified are at peace with God because God made war with his Son on our behalf. As I explained on Friday, Paul introduced this concept of justification in in, uh, Romans chapter 3, and he speaks about the justification in Romans 3, 26. But let's take a look for a moment at at Romans 3, uh, verses 21 to 26. After talking about the bad news, the... The, the universal depravity of man, Jew and Gentile, condemned under the righteous wrath of God for two and a half chapters, from the middle of Romans 1 all the way to the middle of Romans 3. Paul breaks into the good news of Romans 3, verses 21 to 26, which I've said many times is, is arguably one of the most important paragraphs that has ever been written down. Romans three twenty one. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. This was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So again, for two and a, for two and a half chapters, the apostle Paul has spoken about the fact that all Jews and Gentiles are under the just condemnation of God, that Jew and Gentile alike are guilty before the holy God. Well, then in chapter 3, verses 21 and following, the Apostle Paul shows that that there is also, as there is one way of condemnation, there is also one way of salvation. One way of salvation for both Jew and Gentile. I explained that Romans 5, verses 1 to 11 is really foundational to the whole uh, argumentation that Paul is making in Romans about the, the blessings that we've received as those who are justified, and and what our justification costs. It's really central to our understanding of Romans. Well, Paul continues um, after Romans 3 verses 21 to 26 through to the end of chapter 3 to explain that we are justified by faith. And in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul presents Abraham as the exhibit A of someone who is saved by faith, as someone who is justified by faith. And Paul says in Romans 4.3, quoting Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The Jews focused on circumcision, but Paul demonstrates that Abraham was justified prior to receiving circumcision so that Abraham is presented as the spiritual father of all believers, whether Jew or Gentile. Abraham is saved in the exact same way that we are saved through faith in the gospel. But what Abraham saw in shadows and types, we see in the reality through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in this passage in Romans 4 verses 13 to 25, Paul continues to demonstrate that we are justified by God's grace, not man's works. That, this, that the means of our salvation comes to us through God's promise. Now, Paul introduces the term promise in verse 13. And this concept of promise is really important in Paul's writings. Fully half of the references to God's promise are found in, in the, the epistles of Paul. We can trust in God's grace for our salvation because God is faithful to his promises. That's really the central theme of this passage. That we can trust in God's grace for our salvation because God is faithful to his promises. That as God has been faithful to Abraham, God is also faithful to us. So first of all, in verses 13 to 17, we see that, we see that Abraham received God's promise by faith. Abraham received God's promise by faith. The Jews understood wrongly that Paul's promises were received through obedience to the Mosaic law. But as Paul explains in Galatians, um, in Galatians 3, that, that the, the law didn't come for another 430 years. That the law could not disannul, could not annul what had taken place through the promise that God had given to Abraham. So in in verse 13, Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And here Paul is presenting a theme that we saw through our studies in Genesis, that of offspring. Remember that each of the ten sections in the book of Genesis, which which are referred to by their their Hebrew Hebrew word Toledotes, are each, each section begins. These are the generations of, and with each subsequent generation from Adam onwards, the first promise of the gospel comes from Genesis three fifteen, that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Each promise, each generation advances towards the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the promised seed. If you remember, the promise came to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, that in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Now that promise came to Abraham when Abraham was still a pagan. Matthew Henry, re- referring to Joshua 24, 2, says, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived in the, in the, beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So Henry says that Abraham, who afterwards was the friend of God and the great favorite of heaven, was bred up in idolatry and lived long in it till God, by his grace, snatched him as a brand out of the burning. And so God told Abraham to leave his country, to leave his kindred and his father's house to the land that he was going to show him, that he would make Abraham into a great nation, blessing him and making him a blessing. Now this promise is not only for Abraham, but also to his offspring. So then who is this offspring? Well again, I think it's helpful to look at Galatians 3 because Galatians 3.16 provides us a healthy, a helpful commentary. Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to offspring, referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, the offspring of Abraham refers directly to Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate heir of the world. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 13. But there was a serious obstacle Abraham didn't have an offspring. Abraham and Sarah were childless. When well, verses 4 to 5, 14 and 15, Paul continues to make the point that the law is of no avail for salvation. Again from Galatians 3:17 and 18, that the law wasn't given to Moses until 430 years later. The, the inheritance does not come by the law, but by God's promise. The law cannot save. The law, however, does bring wrath. The law shows people that they are guilty. Everyone has broken the law, so all are under God's just wrath. As Paul demonstrates and argues so powerfully in Romans 7, that the law is good, but sin makes it powerless. So let's go there for just a moment. So flip over to Romans chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. So the Apostle Paul here is is showing that the law, again, is righteous, is good and righteous, and is, sorry, is holy, righteous, and good. But sin produces death through what is good, so that sin is shown to be sin. Okay, back to chapter 4, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. God's promises can only come through grace by, sorry, by grace through faith. Remember that faith includes both believing and trusting in God's promises. It's not just mental assent, but relying on God's promises. And so verse 16 continues, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So now Paul is speaking of Abraham's offspring in general. The Jews are Abraham's biological offspring, and Gentiles, he's saying, are his spiritual offspring, and Abraham is the father of both. But being a biological offspring of Abraham isn't enough. Jews must also have faith in order to receive the promises of God. So then the true seed of Abraham is by faith not by, bio, by biological descent. So then Paul says in verse 17, again quoting Genesis seventeen five, God made Abraham the father of many nations. God made Abraham the father of many nations. So as much as the true children of Abraham come by faith, we still need to remember that the initial context, uh, the, the initial context in, context in which these promises were made God was promising Abraham a biological offspring as well. In fact, it is through Abraham's biological offspring that the spiritual offspring would come. Again, remember the promise of Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. But this takes us back to the obstacle. At the time that this promise was given, Abraham wasn't the father of anyone. He had no children. But now in the second half of the verse, we have a hint of what is to come. We have a hint of the solution to the problem, both the biological problem and the spiritual problem. The statement in verse 17, I have made you the father of many nations, was made in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So what does it mean then that, that God gives life to the dead? Well, we get a clue from the immediate context of, in which the promise was given in Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, 1, we see that Abraham was 93. Sarah was 83, 10 years younger. So we we're getting a sense of, of what is being said here. and We get a sense from this, the context of this passage as well, down in verse 19 that Abraham's body was as good as dead, and Sarah's womb was barren. So humanly speaking, it was impossible for them to have children. So God is going to have to provide the solution to the physical problem of the lack of offspring in the birth of Isaac in order to provide the spiritual solution. The birth of isaac calls something into existence that did not previously exist now there's going to be a further problem isn't there a further obstacle to the physical and the spiritual problem when isaac was finally born seven years later Seven years after Genesis 17, and 25 years after the promise had been initially given to Abraham in Genesis 12, after all of that waiting, in Genesis 22, God is going to tell Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. A dead Isaac would be unable to have offspring of his own. This is a serious obstacle to the problem of Abraham becoming the father of many nations. But God gives life to the dead. And so in the immediate context of this passage, we also find a reference to what God is going to do through regarding Isaac. That somehow Isaac is, at least figuratively, going to be raised from the dead. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this in Hebrews 11.19. Where we read the that, physic, that figure, sorry figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive Isaac back from the dead. And so again, we're seeing now typologically, that Isaac is pointing to Jesus, at least the, the resurrection of Isaac is pointing to Jesus. However, it points to another, this points to another resurrection. Uh, a more literal and wonderful resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that resurrection, in us too, God gives life to the dead. Because Abraham did not have to sacrifice Isaac, God provided the ram in the thicket so that Isaac was spared and so that the offspring were spared, so that the biological offspring were spared, so that the spiritual offspring would be spared. So typologically, the, the ultimate type in the, in the, the call to sacrifice Isaac is not, is, is, is not actually Isaac. It's actually the ram of the thicket who provides the sacrifice to spare the life of Isaac. So because of that resurrection, because of the resurrection that that ram of the thicket pointed to, the resurrection of Jesus Christ God also gives us life from the dead. In us, God is also calling something into existence that did not previously exist. Our faith. God creates our faith in the same way that God created the universe. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. God has created faith in all of the elect and justified the elect by faith throughout all of history. God has created a spiritual offspring who share in the same faith as Abraham. Well, now, in the next five verses, Paul describes Abraham's faith, verses 18 to 22. Now we see that Abraham's faith in God's promise did not waver. Abraham's faith in God's promise did not waver. Abraham's faith was greater than the obstacles, or more accurately, Abraham's faith was fixed on God who is greater than the obstacles. Abraham's faith was fixed on the God who is faithful, the God who always keeps his promises. Just think for a moment about the terms that Paul uses here to describe Abraham's faith. In hope, he believed against hope. He did not weaken in faith. No unbelief made him waver. He grew strong in faith. He was fully convinced. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's faith. Now, when we look at our own faith in comparison to what is being described here, we consider our own faith is, is weak sometimes, isn't it? It's easy to be discouraged when you say that what is what is being presented here is as Abraham's faith, it, it can be we can be discouraged, but don't be. Because brothers and sisters you have the same faith as Abraham you have the same faith as Abraham so let's think about this, this this description of Abraham's faith first of all in verse 18 Abraham hoped against hope hope is another key word in Paul's writing especially in Romans where it's used more often than in any other book in the New Testament Faith and hope go together. We spoke about hope on Friday. It's the final link in the golden chain of sanctification from Romans 5, 3 to 5. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance versus character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. The trials that we experience produce endurance, character, and hope. And this was the case for Abraham as well. From what Abraham could see with his natural eyes, there was no reason at all to think that God's promises would be fulfilled. And yet he hoped in the fulfillment of God's promises. And You probably heard the expression, hope against hope. For most people, it means clinging to a mere possibility, to a thread of hope. I think of the 33 Chilean miners who were trapped in the Copiapo mining incident in 2010. On August 5th, a cave-in trapped the men 700 meters and five kilometers—700 meters underground and five kilometers from the mine's entrance. It wasn't even known if the men were alive until 17 days after the accident, when they found, when or sorry, when um, rescuers found a note that was taped to a drill bit that was pulled back to the surface, saying that "We are well in the shelter," in Spanish, of course. We're well in the shelter, the 33 of us. They were alive, hoping against hope that they would be rescued. It took three drilling teams, NASA, and dozens of corporations over two months to rescue those men. For two months, they were, they were bound in that hole 600, 700 meters below the ground. The operation cost over $20 million. But it was revealed later that one of the men in that mine was actually an Evangelical pastor. His hope was in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was leading prayer and Bible study in that mine to help those men grow in hope. In fact, he led several of the men to faith in Jesus Christ during the ordeal. So their hope, like Abraham's, went beyond the circumstances. Their hope went beyond being rescued from that mine because they had been rescued from death. And that was Abraham's hope as well. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed that through his offspring, not only he, but that people from many nations would be rescued from death. Verse 19, Abraham did not weaken in faith. We looked at this a moment ago. Abraham was about 100 years old, And Sarah was 90 and barren before Isaac was born. Abraham was as good as dead. Sarah was infertile. The external circumstances were certainly stacked up against them. I just need to stop here for a moment though. I know many couples who have dealt with and continue to deal with infertility. There's many couples who are unable to have children, and it is a trial. But imagine the compounding of pain it would be to tell them that they just need more faith in order to have children. Or for those who would use this passage to tell them that God has promised them children as well. Now it happens more often than you think. But God has not promised to provide infertile couples with biological children. God has only promised this couple biological children. Abraham had faith. Abraham had faith that God would keep his promises. Verse 20. No unbelief made Abraham waver, but he grew strong in faith. Now, as you think back to what we read about, about Abraham in Genesis, we can think of times that Abraham's faith did waver, can't we? Remember Genesis 12, where, where he had gone down to Egypt with Sarah, and he told her to lie for him, saying that she was his sister, because he was, was afraid of, of what the Egyptians would do to, to him, because Sarah was beautiful. So he compromised his his wife's virtue and compromised her morality, making her lie, in order to protect his own skin. And he did it again, didn't he, in Genesis chapter 20. And then his son Isaac followed his footsteps in Genesis 26. No, Abraham did not have perfect faith, but Abraham grew in faith. Abraham grew strong in faith. The trials and even his failures and the way God worked through his trials and through his failures caused Abraham's faith to grow. Now in this verse, the verb grew strong is actually in the passive voice. The growth wasn't something that Abraham did. He didn't will his faith to grow. It was something that God did in him. In fact, even the very presence of faith at all wasn't something that Abraham did, but it was something that God did in him. Paul says in Philippians 1.29 that it was granted to you to believe. Friends, faith is a gift. Ephesians 2.8 and 9 that we touched on on Friday says, For by grace you have been saved, and this not of your own doing it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast." Now the grammar of the sentence shows that the grace, being saved, and the faith are all the gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. Do you have faith in God? Have you experienced growth in faith through the challenges that you've faced? Maybe you have struggled in faith. Maybe in in ways similar to the ways that Abraham struggled. But is your faith growing? In the parable of the soils in Matthew 13, we read about how some seed falls on rocky ground. And the seed springs up because there is no depth of soil. Jesus explains that the, the word is received with joy but there is no root and so it endures for a while but when tribulation or persecution come they make him fall away. There's no root. The one who's, who has rocky soil means that they've never been saved in the first place and the, so their failure to grow in faith because of, of trials, their walking away from the faith is evidence that their faith was never real. But in the believer... The opposite is true. And the believer trials make the roots go down deep. When believers see the faithfulness of God, even in spite of their faithlessness, their faith grows because of the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. In verse 21, we see that Abraham was fully convinced that God would do what he promised. Again, we see that Abraham wasn't always fully convinced. Remember, Sarah wasn't the only one that laughed at the announcement that the Lord had promised that they would have a son. Remember that Abraham took matters into his own hands, fathering Ishmael through his, his concubine Hagar. This is a decision that Israel is still dealing with to this day. The waiting was a trial. And it was a trial that produced endurance and character and hope. It was a trial that engendered faith because of the Holy Spirit in Abraham's heart. But I think the clearest and greatest test of Abraham's faith came after the birth of Isaac. I referred to this earlier, Genesis 22, when God told Abraham to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. This was contrary to everything that Abraham knew about God's character. This was contrary to everything that Abraham knew about God's promises. Yet how does Abraham respond? No argument. No question. No questioning. No negotiating. He simply rose early in the morning and proceeded to do what God had commanded him to do. Abraham had grown in faith. Abraham knew that God had promised a future offspring through Isaac. Abraham knew that God had told him to sacrifice Isaac. Now, he couldn't reconcile both of these in his mind, so he simply trusted God. He knew that God would be faithful to his promises. And so when Abraham, when Isaac asked Abraham in 22, Genesis 22, 7, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham replied with the reply of faith. God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering, my son. In every other sacrifice, the offerer provided the animal. But here, however, Abraham shows that God's command and God's promise made the offering God's responsibility. And so Abraham acted in faith. Abraham is the most prominent figure in Hebrews chapter 11, the Hebrews' hall of faith. The writer of Hebrews commends Abraham's faith and circles around to do it again in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham believed that God was able to do what God had promised he would do. So in verse 22, Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. This is another reference to Genesis fifteen six. Again, Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. But it's important to realize, listen carefully here. It is not the quality of Abraham's faith that saved him it was the object of his faith the object of his faith compare Abraham's faith to that of the apostles Jesus had told them again and again that he would be killed Jesus had told them again and again that he would rise from the grave but they obviously weren't convinced after all when when Jesus was going to be crucified they fled And then after that, they gathered in terror that they were going to be next. But like Abraham, the apostles were not saved by the quality of their faith, but in the object of their faith. Like Abraham's faith, that of the apostles grew. After they had an encounter with the risen Christ, and after they were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, everything changed. Their faith blossomed and produced fruit. These men, once fearful, became bold ambassadors for the gospel. Their faith, their growth in faith, proved that their faith was real. Their faith was in the same object as Abraham's faith. Their faith was in Jesus Christ. And if your faith is in the same object, you have the same faith. You are saved by the same faith. Well, finally, in verses 23 to 25, we receive God's promise by faith in God's unwavering faithfulness. We receive God's promise by faith in God's unwavering faithfulness. Verse 23, but the words it was counted for him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. The justification of Abraham by faith wasn't just for Abraham. Paul is saying here that it was for the Romans as well. Paul's going to say later in Romans fifteen four, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. But it wasn't just for Abraham, and it wasn't just for the Romans, but also for us. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We are Abraham's offspring because we share in the same faith as Abraham. Abraham. As Tom Schreiner explains, when Christians believe that God's promises have been fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus, they're exercising the same dynamic faith as Abraham. It's the same faith. In verse 24, Paul explains that righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who was raised, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. Abraham's faith was counted As righteousness the Romans faith was counted as righteousness our faith is counted as righteousness Abraham believed in the resurrecting God verses 17 and 19 and so do Christians we also believe in the resurrecting God Christians today believe in God who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead now Abraham did not have the same depth of understanding of the gospel that we do we live after the events of that first Resurrection Sunday. In God's providence, we live after the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham in Christ. We understand the fullness of what God has done in Christ. In Romans 10.9, we read that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from, the dead, from the dead, you will be saved. You can't understand the resurrection of Jesus without the death of Jesus. And you can't understand the death of Jesus without the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus was delivered up. Jesus was handed over for our trespasses. We focused on this on Friday. Romans 8.32, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2. In Peter's Pentecost sermon, you can see it in in chapter uh, 2, verses 14 and following. We don't want to zero in on verses 22 and following. Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was God's plan. It was God's plan from the beginning. It wasn't plan B. The crucifixion was God's plan. When the scriptures speak about God's foreknowledge, it's also speaking of his foreordination. Now there's a mystery here. We think of of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It was indeed lawless men who did this the Jews and the Romans conspired to kill Jesus. But Jesus wasn't just given into the hands of sinful men for the crucifixion. Jesus was delivered into the hands of the Holy God in his crucifixion. Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Again, these are the things that we focused on on Friday, and that the death of Jesus, that the wrath of God was poured out on him in our place. But here again in Romans 2, 24, we read that God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And, David continue, and Peter continues quoting David from Psalm 16 that was read for us earlier. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter continues explaining that, that David died, that, that David's tomb was still present there with him in Jerusalem in verse 29. But he goes on to say that David was speaking prophetically. Then in Psalm 16, David spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, you can't have the death of Christ without the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection was Jesus' vindication. Again from Tom Schreiner. To say that Jesus was raised because of our justification is to say that his resurrection authenticates and confirms that our justification has been, cons- has been secured. The resurrection of Christ constitutes evidence that his work on our behalf has been completed. In other words, that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has, been, has revealed that he was satisfied with Jesus' sacrifice. Through the resurrection, God reveals that Jesus has indeed fulfilled all that is required for our salvation. The resurrection reveals that Jesus Christ, even though he died in the place of sinners, that Jesus Christ was not himself a sinner, that he was bearing the sins of others. And so in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have Christ's vindication and our salvation. Now in shadows and types, Abraham looked forward to the same gospel. Abraham somehow understood from the Abrahamic covenant when when God told him to sacrifice the animals and lay them out in a row. And then God put Abraham into a deep sleep and then then God himself walked in the middle of those, those killed animals in a burning torch and fire pot. God was demonstrating that he would fulfill both parts of the covenant. Abraham understood this in, in Shadows and Types. Abraham believed the gospel. He didn't understand in the fullness as we do, but he understood that somehow God was going to pay the penalty. That somehow God was going to provide the sacrifice. Because those slain animals were a type. They showed that, that the, 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 the ones who walked through, who made, the ones who made a covenant together, were saying that if I break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And God went through alone. Abraham was sound asleep. Jesus fulfilled both halves of the covenant. Abraham believed that God would pay the price. Abraham believed in the God who would raise the dead. Abraham did not believe that it would be God himself in the same way that we do in the the God-man, Jesus Christ, But Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you believe in the God of Abraham? Do you have the same faith as Abraham? Do you believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, if you do, then you too will be raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we praise you for your life, your death, your resurrection. We praise you for the gospel. We praise you that you lived the righteous life that we've never lived. We praise you that you died the death that we deserve to die. And we praise you, Lord, that it was impossible for death to hold you that you have been raised victorious over sin and death and hell. Victorious over sin and death and hell for Abraham and for us. We praise you, Lord, that you have granted us faith as a gift through the work of your Holy Spirit. Help us, we pray, Lord, to grow in faith. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us, Lord, to grow in faith that your name might be exalted and that your church might be built up in faith. Amen.